I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. This is Attica Locke. This is Lee Child. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Ian Rankin. This is Kelly Garrett. This is Ace Atkins. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. It's interesting that you say that. This is Meg Gardner, and you're listening to Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. Welcome to the show. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. We write crime and mystery books. We like to talk about crime and mystery books, and we have some great crime and mystery authors with us today. Steve, who do we have? We've got author David Swenson, who gives us some sound career advice. I think you can be a working cocaine user if you do it right. And Ed Amar denies our simple request. I really don't get naked in public that often. And five questions with Michelle W. Miller. Plus, we hear from our reviewers, the Malmans. All that is brought to you by our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. Some Blackstone titles we think you would enjoy include The Korean Woman by John Altman, Fletch by Gregory McDonald, and My Detective by Jeffrey Fleischman. Those books and more can be found at blackstonepublishing.com. Well, Steve, we've got the Malmans talking books a little later. So what have you been up to that's outside of the book world? I've been watching this Amazon Prime show called White Dragon. Have you heard about it? Ooh, I've heard of it. I just added that to my list, but I haven't uh, dug in yet. Is it worth it? Yes and no, I think would be my response to that question. Um, It's about an English professor whose wife gets killed in Hong Kong. And he flies out there to collect her body, but uh, quickly becomes embroiled uh, in a thriller scenario around her death. It is really, really beautifully shot. Like the cinematography is really great, even on a TV or a laptop screen. And I've also really been enjoying it because the guy who plays the professor, I I keep pretending he's Tom York from Radiohead in my head (laughs) for some reason. So that's made it really enjoyable. But the plot's a little outlandish. One of the things that happens early on, spoilers, is he discovers that his English wife had another husband in China. But then somehow, uh, by the middle of the first episode, they've teamed up to solve her murder, which I just, I find it really hard to believe that those two would just jump right in like that. But uh, there are things about it that are really great. It moves fast. Like I said, the cinematography is great. It's really pretty. And and I'll definitely finish it. I've got one episode to go and I'll let you know uh, how I think it wrapped up. How about you? Well, if you're looking for uh, something that's wildly different and uh, in short bursts when you're done with that, I really recommend Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. These are a series of short animated films, uh, a lot of which are adapted from short stories by writers like Joe R. Lansdale and John Scalzi. And it's uh, it's animation, but it's very adult. Some of these are really <laughs> extreme with the violence and the naked animated people. But, oh my God, the animation, like the technology that we've reached in this art form is mind-blowing. Some of the things you look at and you cannot believe that it's animated. You would think you're looking at real people doing real things. But the animation style is different for everyone. Some of them are really hilarious. Some of them are just super dark and violent. Uh, They're all, you know, between eight and 15 minutes. So they, they're quick little bursts, but just really wild, really entertaining stuff. Well, I, I think you just gave us another great band name, which is Naked Animated People. <laughs> I don't know if I would be in for uh, what the stage show would have to look like for that. <laughs> there would be a, a lot of use of cartoons. Yeah, uh, we could be the next gorillas. They sell a lot of records, right? <laughs> 
And uh, we always turn it to music. So the other thing that I've been doing a lot in my long, long commute is uh, listening to the podcast Cocaine and Rhinestones. Have you listened to this podcast? No, but it sounds right up my alley. It may be and it may not be. I was a little trepidatious because it's all about country music. And this is a deep dive into 20th century country music. So a lot of it, it takes is like the 30s, 40s, 50s that sort of classic country period, uh, you know, there's episodes on guys like Buck Owens, who I always sort of secretly liked, and uh, episodes on specific songs like Harper Valley PTA and things like that. But these are deep, deep dives. Some of the episodes are as much as two hours long, but it's like, it's actually really, really well-researched, really well-presented, and is teaching me a lot about a genre that I will admit that I did not know a whole heck of a lot about. Well, with that transition, I think we should get straight into our first guest. Speaking of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Our first guest is author David Swinson, who recently wrapped up his Frank Marr trilogy with the novel Trigger. And Frank Marr, yes, has uh, had a history of uh, cocaine problems. We caught up with David and the interview immediately went off the rails when we realized we all had punk rock in common. Yeah, we will not subject the listener to the 20-minute diversion that we took into club shows in Southern California and a lot of our favorite bands. But suffice it to say, this was one of our favorite interviews just to chat with someone. Just so you know, the interview's been going on ever since and will probably last for the next few years. <laughs> Instant friends. All right, David, I'm just going to jump right in and ask what I think is the most important question of this interview. You used to book punk shows at legendary SoCal venues. You used to hang around with Timothy Leary and Hunter Thompson, right? Yeah. So how the hell did you become a cop? <laughs> I know everyone asked, <laughs> asked that. Even even uh, a lot of the friends I'm uh, still friends with in the punk days, like the you know Jan from the Vandals. It, there's two things I've really always wanted to be in my life. And you know I, I wanted to get into law enforcement. And my original major was criminology. And uh, I always wanted to be a writer. But then after college, um, I fell into a disastrous long-term relationship with this girl who um, actually I'm thankful for because she got me into the scene. And, and I sort of diverted my way from writing, from everything, and found that in Long Beach, California, the kids didn't have venues. They'd have to go to Orange County or Hollywood to go to a good show. So I found two places and um, started booking really a lot of great shows. It's always a woman, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I, despite the, the nature of that relationship, you know, I'm, uh, I'm thankful for it because it, it, it led me here, you know. I'm, I'm grateful no matter how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm grateful to her too because I enjoyed some fantastic shows at Fender's Ballroom when I was a teenager. Are you um, kidding no, I definitely went to see Seven Seconds and Agent Orange and Social oh, Distortion. Oh, my shows. Yeah. yeah. My so, gosh, that is so cool. Yeah. So you're a police officer yourself. What is the appeal to you of writing dirty cops? It didn't originally start that way. I was writing a, a lot of police procedurals and, and getting a lot of rejections. And, and I always had this idea for a, a Frank Marr character in the back of my head. And um, I just said, forget it. You know, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do something outside of myself. 
And uh, I, I wrote him and had a lot of fun. He allowed me to break rules, you know. He's a dirty cop, but he's not a dirty cop, you know. Yeah, he's he's definitely a guy who's he's got his issues, but there still is an underlying sense of uh, justice and wanting to do the right yeah. thing. I mean, there's like a DC had and has, I'm sure, its share of dirty cops. You know, back in '89, '90, they had this hiring spree, and I really didn't do a lot of backgrounds, and that's where the dirty dozen came from. And and I also think it's dirty if you're doing if you're a cop and you do cocaine. So Frank's not. The best guy in the world. <laughs> and I don't, you know, well, I don't agree with him. Uh, I mean, like you say, it's at the start of this series. You know, Frank is uh, he's he's a pretty serious coke addict. I mean, do you see any parallels between drug addicts that would actually make them good investigators? Uh, a lot of what I did uh, through the Department of Justice was I uh, debriefed or interviewed defendants, and you know, uh, crack cocaine made them incredible burglars. I mean, one guy, you know, four to 500 burglaries and he's caught on his 500th burglary. So he's got to be pretty good, you know, because <laughs> he's feeding that habit. The reason I picked cocaine is because I think you can be a, a working cocaine user if you do it right, like Frank. In, in the first two books, yeah, it did, it did help him because it gave, I, I, I don't know if you've read Crime Song, but there's this, this passage in it where Biddy, the guy that commits suicide in the cell, goes off crack and he doesn't like himself when he's not high. You know, he has to face his real self. And that's sort of like Frank. He self-medicates. He, he doesn't really like himself. So that's how I look at it. You know, as the series evolves, you know, Frank obviously has a touch and go relationship with sobriety. And, and how does that inform your relationship with him as an author as you're sort of crafting these stories? I want him to be sober, you know, <laughs> I, I want him to, but the trick in writing him in the beginning was this character who you had to try to make likable because he's so failed. And I think the, a big reason he was likable is one thing that turns me off is um, when I'm reading something and the, the protagonist is always complaining, you know, the, the, the divorce, uh, the pay and, you know, I mean, all this kind of stuff, they're complaining, complaining. Frank didn't, doesn't complain, but, Hunter Thompson blew his head off. I mean, there has to be a point where he gets sober, or else he's just not going to not going to survive. So I had to write that. In Crime Song, uh, we've already talked about music a little bit, and Steve and I will take any excuse to turn these interviews back around to music. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Do you have uh, any favorite crime theme songs? Oh my gosh, yeah. Do you guys do playlists? I don't. It's, you, you have before. Yeah, well, I wrote a series of three books set in Hermosa Beach about a cop who's a in a, a singer in a punk band. So for that, so for that, I had to put together a lot of playlists. Well, for me, yeah, uh, music's a very, very important to getting me in, in the mood of the where I need to be writing. And my favorite. Well, they're not really crime songs, but Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I always go to him when I need inspiration. When you write a series set in DC, does the tone of the novel change based on who's in office? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's an interesting question. It's I purposely 
stay out of the politics in, in the books, but it changes me. I, I'm having a, a very difficult time writing because of who's in office. And I, I don't know if you guys get affected by it, but I can't even just I can't even turn the news on anymore. And, oh yeah. But uh, but I don't allow it to. Uh, 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 you know, Frank's concerns are he watches the news for the weather. You know, I mean, you know, I'll leave that to Don Winslow. He can do a much better job of that <laughs> than me. <laughs> but no, it affects me personally, man. I mean, I'm I'm totally stressed out about you know everything that's going on, and I. You know, I'll flat out say it. I can't stand the guy. Oh, you're not like supporters, are you? No, no. <laughs> this is a safe space. You're okay. I'm sorry. Politics has its place, just not in what I do. There is a little bit of a political thread through Trigger in that it's very much about, you know, this police shooting and yeah. sort of trying to dig That's down and de decide, you know, was this, uh, you know, quote, a, a good shooting or, or, or not? I mean, do you think the current climate informed a little bit of that uh, plot device? Yeah, the reason I wanted to write Trigger was because of that. I just wanted to really show is, uh, from the cop side that there's a lot of gray. And it's funny to say good shooting, but you know, there are good shootings and there are bad shootings, but all shootings are bad. And you know, <laughs> and most cops don't want to get, they don't wake up in the morning and say, oh man, I think I'm gonna go shoot somebody today. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you, know, it, good. you know, it's not like television where, you know, they, they shoot two guys and they're back on the job the next day. I mean, they're put on administrative leave, you know, and there's always a grand jury investigation, but I don't mention, you know, I, I don't even mention race. And I did that purposely, but it's funny, like a lot of the reviews that are coming out are saying like, and Black Lives Matter was protesting at headquarters in the book. And I, I never mentioned them, but they assumed that that's who was protesting. And so they, you know, and I think that's interesting, you know, but. One thing that struck me in reading Trigger is the way it plays out almost in real time i mean you're you're not jumping around you're not like skipping uh, huge leaps in time I yeah. mean, do you think that's a holdover from like those procedurals you were talking about or even just your your time on the job of like wanting to kind of get it down in chronological almost minute by minute order yeah that that's interesting i mean well first it's a first person present tense so um it's it's a little harder just to jump i think for me but also, I used to write hundred-page affidavits, you know, in support of search warrants and stuff like that. And you, get, you know, it's bam, 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 chronological. And so, I mean, that that really helped me. But I'm just that type of writer. I can't jump six months or even a week. You know, I can maybe jump a day later or a couple days later. But it it has to be very linear. You know. What is next for Frank Marr? Well, you know, he met Calvin. Um, and it's the end of the series. It's a trilogy. So um, he's going to take a bre break for a little while. I'm, I'm working on something different. I see uh, Frank and Calvin doing some really cool stuff because I love Calvin. And I think you have that really cool dynamic with this ex-street thug who really is turned into a good guy. <laughs> and then you have this ex-dirty cop who's struggling to be good but he's really not good you know and then you have that 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 dynamic that's working you know because calvin's uh turned into a, a good kid man you know and he sort of is is like this one guy that that turned around for me on the job which was you know it's, it's always like incredible when that happens 
you sort of have the two parallel tracks of redemption for these guys. Yeah, exactly. Well, Steve, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> if I've learned anything in this episode, it's that for three old punk rockers, redemption is writing crime fiction. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You know, now that I think about it, I wonder if there are any crime novelists who are starting punk bands, you know, like going in reverse. I think it's up to us to uh, grab that drumstick and run with it. <laughs> but wait, that would be a boomerang. Like, we started in punk, and then we wrote books, and then we're going to go back to it? Like, do you ever really leave punk rock? I mean, I, from the sounds of our conversation, I don't think you do. From the looks of how many bands are still out there touring with the guys that are in their late 50s, that, yeah, I, I think once it's in your bones, it's in your bones might have something to do with the lack of record sales in the modern era and needing to feed themselves. <laughs> That's a whole different podcast, Steve. Punks who need to feed themselves. <laughs> See, that's uh, this is the start of our uh, co-written uh, punk zombie novel. <laughs> well, Steve, our next guest is E.A. Amar with his new novel, The Unrepentant. Eric, before we get to the interview, I want to know a little bit more about the book. And the good news is our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, have been reading it. Hey, Eric and Steve. This is Dan. And Kate. And today we're going to talk a little bit about E.A. Amar's The Unrepentant. Kate, what are your thoughts? I really enjoyed this book. It's a story about... A young woman who was kidnapped and ends up uh, becoming a victim of sex trafficking. She escapes from her captors just as a man named uh, Mace Peterson stumbles upon the scene, rescues her, then becomes a race for their lives. And after that, I really enjoyed how uh, Ed Amar, the author, portrayed Charlotte throughout the course of the book. She could have been very much a shrinking violet. She could have very much been a character who just was so overwrought with the terrible, terrible things that were done with her. And there were terrible, terrible things done to her. But he makes her to be a very strong character. She draws upon the terrible things that have happened to her and uses it as her motivation to get justice. I was also really impressed with this book. I think what really made The Unrepentant so memorable for me was that Amar does a very honest, raw portrayal of the horrors of sex trafficking and what Charlotte has uh, been facing against. And he creates this cadre of real evil sons of bitches, but they're not cartoony. When Charlotte and Mace go up against them, he does a really impressive job of dark, dark humor up against um, the horrors that they're facing. And you're laughing despite yourself, but he's not uh, minimizing the evil that's, that they're facing. And I think that's a really, really incredible feat. I mean, there's a reason that Kate and I decided um, that we're just going to focus on this book. So far, I think we're both agreeing that this is uh, the measuring stick of a very early 2019 reader season. I don't know if reader season is a thing. It is now. It is now. So I think with that, we're going to toss it right back to you guys. Well, after that rave review, I guess we really should talk to Ed. Yes. Uh, it would have been very awkward if they hated it. But I don't know. Ed, Ed can probably take it. He has very thick skin. 
I mean, like literally, it's a medical condition. <laughs> <laughs> Old thick skin dad. Take it away. So the anthology you co-edited last year, The Night of the Flood, had a ton of buzz. And now your latest novel, The Unrepentant, has a lot of heat on it. Is this the longest winning streak of your life? My wife said yes to marrying me when I asked her, you know, when we got engaged. Then we got married. That was about nine months. This has been about a year. So, yeah, I beat that by three months. That was 10 years ago. Now, I mean, she changed her mind several times during the engagement. <laughs> so it's really not a long-term win, but yeah, you know. You guys have a, a child, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And you just went ahead and skipped right over that. I did, I did. I mean, that wasn't as much of a winning streak. <laughs> <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't maybe the way I, I thought this interview would go. <laughs> well, well, that's okay, because we have a follow-up question for you. As long as we're on the subject of streaking, uh, have you ever been arrested for public nudity? And uh, how often and, and why? We need details here, Ed. Yeah, no, you know, and I really don't get naked in public that often. I, I don't have a lot of guiding morals or principles, but one of the things that really bothers me is the amount of time in locker rooms that men are naked, especially older men. You know, they go to the mirror and they shave and they're completely naked and, you know, you're staring at them and then they realize you're staring at them and it's just an awkward, awkward moment. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure you're here to talk about books. So, you know, they say to write what you know. So so why did you choose to center your novel around an 18-year-old runaway named Charlotte Reyes? Yeah, well, you know, I was writing a novel, you know, about sex trafficking and and not many people had taken the pro-sex trafficking angle. (laughs) So, no, that's not it. Um, I I really wanted to write a novel in in seriousness about with a female protagonist and my other two novels had had male protagonists, but the female characters were the ones that readers or the reader that read those books uh, (laughs) was most taken with. And, and those are the characters I, I really liked writing. And I wanted to just sort of test myself as a writer. So Charlotte uh, is yeah, technically the co-protagonist of the book. But um, I, th- that's why I went with that. I wanted, to, I, I wanted to see if I could do that without falling into the traps that so many writers, especially male writers, fall into. Like I didn't describe her breasts as some type of you know, fruit, for example. That was one thing I was <laughs> conscious of not doing. Well, I mean, it's right there in the title with the unrepentant. I mean, Charlotte is, you know, she's on a mission of revenge here. I mean, did you have to think about any of those issues of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make her basically just a, a substitute for a male character in a female body? Or did you have to think about her reasons for wanting to get revenge that would justify her actions? Yeah, I, I wanted the, you know, it was a, it's a revenge book. And, and I, you know, when I talk about it with people, I, I call it a, a study of violence, really, um, and how it affects people. Charlotte takes revenge, but she does so out of what she sees as necessity. And I, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want her to be a male character just, you know, with a, a female anatomy. I wanted her to 
to to fully embody you know a, a woman uh, you know that's obviously something we've seen changing in pop culture and i think it's something that's exciting it's really cool to see and i'm looking forward to seeing where it goes from here because you're you're getting characters who i think are a little more well-rounded in that but do you feel like you approach this character in regards to the changes in pop culture with any kind of trepidation or were you just kind of certain of who she was from the moment you started writing well there were mistakes i made you know and and there was i i want again i wanted to be really conscious of that but i'm in the fortunate place where a lot of the people I bounce stories off of or chapters off of when I'm writing are female writers. My agent is a uh, is a woman, and the woman that uh, the editor for the book uh, is a woman as well. So they called me out on a lot of my bullshit, which is which is really important. Talk about revenge uh, as sort of the engine to driving the plot. I mean, it's it's a popular subject to tackle i know i've i've used it as as the gasoline to sort of fuel some stories myself is uh, is that something that's maybe in your heart a little bit like you ever feel you've been wronged and you you want to seek your own personal vigilante justice i like vigilantes to a point you know and i like violence to a point right violence is really the thing that that interests me about about all of these stories when violence comes to you it's it, it's it's very fast and it's unfair and uh, unless you're the antagonist in that narrative uh, you can't control the narrative when it happens and it changes you and i think everybody at at some point has been affected by violence and has seen that i take pains to avoid it and and that's what i want to write you know the people who there's always an interest in people who traffic in violence and who are able to sort of stand tall when you know there's bullets flying around and i want to write about that person but i also want to write about the person who's who's next to them who, who's sort of cowering down in the dirt you know which would be me um <laughs> <laughs> i think though that quantifying violence is actually really difficult um, when writing about it, because I've attempted to do it myself, and I know Eric has to some degree as well. Um, and I think that's why a lot of writers sidestep it. So how did you approach trying to get in the head of somebody who's been the subject of unspeakable violence? Well, I read a lot of, I, I did a lot of research for this book, and I typically don't do that much research. But for this one, I interviewed a woman who have worked in sex work, and women who have who are fighting against sex traffickers yeah i like you said i was trying to quantify it and i want to portray it as sort of an ugly callous thing but i you have to keep the reader in mind and how much a reader is willing to take and how much they want to read um about that before you're losing them but i wrote all that knowing that what i was writing was less violent and and what and and you know, absolutely less awful than the experiences that have been conveyed to me. I, I still held back. And I, I think that was, that was important. So readers, have, you know, re readers and reviewers have talked about the violence in the book, but to this point, uh, very few people have complained that it's excessive and no one has said it's gratuitous. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fine line, but I think you, you walk it well. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And it's, 
and, and it's something that I, I know a lot of crime fiction writers nowadays are really conscious of. You know, I, I think part of that is just there's so many more voices out there and so many more experiences that we now take into account when we write. We look at things differently, but we're also looking at people more so who are who have been victimized by violence. And we want to portray them, you know, uh, honestly and and uh, and we want to take their experiences into account. Well, Ed, thank you so much for being with us. I know you've been wanting to be on the show for quite a while now. You've really, you've kind of been pestering us a little bit. Yeah, I, I did. I did because Steve and I share, you know, uh, initials in our writing name. Well, we don't share initials. We both use initials. It'd be, I guess I could be SWA more, but that doesn't work. Why you guys insist on using the initials? It's so confusing for the rest of us. For me, I just never liked how Ed Amar looks in print. I mean, that's the honest reason. I had no other other thought um, beyond that. I, I just never liked the name Ed. And my real name, my birth name is Eduardo, though. And it's, I'm just not, I'm, I'm, I know myself. I'm not sexy enough to be Eduardo. <laughs> EA is right where I'm at, like a five out of ten. Steve, you are exactly as sexy as a Steve, I think. <laughs> I, I feel like you're insulting me right now. I don't think you could pull off Steven. You're not that sexy, but... Talk, talk to my mom. That's what she calls me. <laughs> I would say, I mean, I would say you're as, you know, as sexy as Steve Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, I mean, I don't mean to brag, but I kind of am now officially the Steve Buscemi of the crime fiction world. <laughs> You could do worse. Steve Buscemi is like a reverberation of Don Knotts, so I'm really not sure what that says about my looks. I would love to be the Don Knotts of the crime fiction community. Consider it done, my friend. <laughs> it is time for another five questions with segment. And who's in the hot seat this time, Eric? Michelle W. Miller is a lawyer and a novelist whose latest is Widows in Law. It's described as a gripping tale of mothers and daughters, wives and ex-wives, and unlikely partners in crime. And Steve, you know how much we like a good accent on our guests. Ooh, is she from England? Australia? Is she a pirate? <laughs> I think listeners will be able to tell pretty quickly. Your previous book from 2013 was The 13th Step, Zombie Recovery, which was a dystopian science fiction novel. Why make the jump into suspense and thrillers with widows-in-law? Well, you know, I'm basically a reader first, I think, and I just became very enamored of some of the suspense that's out now. I, once I got through all of Stephen King's best work, I started moving on from uh, speculative fiction and started immersing myself. But I, I have to say that the book sort of called to me rather than me making a conscious decision about what book I'm going to write. But I hope that my books, uh, because they're working out larger issues perhaps than the genre uh, necessarily would call for, that my fans will cross over. You know, the 13th step was more about finding hope in the ashes of a destroyed life and sort of related to my own biography as a, you know, low bottom heroin addict as a, as a, a young woman and, you know, having a whole new life. And Widows and Law is also about two women who built safe lives for themselves and find themselves thrown into chaos. And I think some of that has to 
to do with my own having built this fabulous life with the two kids and the dog and the two cats and you know all the the wonderful things about about life when one is not a criminal anymore uh, and be just having that fear of being pulled backwards into this this crazy life well it sounds really interesting and i love the plot already was there an inspiration to having an ex-wife and a new younger wife team up after their mutual love interest dies? Well, this is a somewhat of a dark story from a somewhat distant past, so I get to write about it without any guilt. But my uh, sister's ex-husband died suddenly many years ago, and she and the, the second wife, who was kind of a trophy wife. So my you know my sister is not really the model for the, the first wife, Lauren, but... The second wife being sort of a trophy wife is similar. And they both had to get together and raise my very rebellious teenage niece at the time. And so at the time, I used to say to my sister things like, so how's the widow-in-law doing? And, you know, and I thought, well, that would be a great title. And so it was very easy for me in the context of this thing that my sister and my niece were going through to come up with this entire crime scenario and, and have these women have to move beyond their perceptions of each other and their and their bitterness towards each other and work together to deal with the crisis that ensues. Some of the promo copy for your new book describes widows-in-law as, and I quote, a moving story about the women left behind to clean up the messes that men make. And the question I have for you, Michelle, on behalf of men everywhere, what the heck? You know, that one of my favorite blurbs that came out this week said that, you know, from a, a reader on Amazon, and I do read these reviews because I find that this is really uh, free advice from the people that you're trying to read. She said it's unusual for a suspense novel's smartest characters to be women, perhaps because we think with the correct head. There, there, there are some really cool male characters in this book. You know, there's a... There's a wonderful FBI agent and there's a dog named Mookie that's like really cool and, and he's a guy. So it's not, I'm not. <laughs> Wait a second. Did you just call men dogs? No, I said that this dog is wonderful and, you know, dogs are wonderful. So if I say men are dogs, then maybe that's a compliment. Okay, Michelle, you are a lawyer by day, which is kind of incredible after learning you were once a heroin addict. So good for you. But do you practice the kind of law that's helpful for a budding suspense and thriller writer? Well, I am an ethics prosecutor, government ethics prosecutor. <laughs> which is really, I, I mean, I get to see some crazy things. I mean, I've, I've worked as a child abuse prosecutor, so I've seen a lot of uh, crazy things there. And, and again, like I... I mean, I am one of the miracle stories because there's not too many lawyers out there that, you know, face 15 to life in prison when they were younger or, you know, went through some of the things that I went through. So I, I have material that comes both from my own life and things I see in, in my legal practice that I think gives this novel some interesting depth. I mean, some of the bad guys in the novel come straight out of my memories of people like drug cartel leaders or hitmen, it does give me a lot to write about. Is Widows in Law the start of a series or what's next for you? I'm not a lover of series, but I have 
started a novel that focuses on Lauren, the the main character's mother, and her daughter, the rebellious daughter, all grown up. Of course, there is a crime thing going on there, so there will be plenty of scary stuff and They'll have to work. You know, I mean, in my books, you have to work out your stuff, not on the therapist's couch, but while you're sort of duking it out with the bad guys. Well, she has a fascinating backstory to her own life. And if she's putting that into her novels, then uh, we can expect great things. Good news is, Eric, that one Lucky Writer Types fan is going to get to find out firsthand. But we'll let Michelle explain that. Hello, I'm Michelle W. Miller. And we're giving away a copy of my thriller, Widows in Law, to a writer types listener. So if you want a chance to get your own copy of Widows in Law, courtesy of our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing, just follow us on Twitter. And speaking of giveaways, we have a winner to announce for our last show's giveaway. We asked you to find us on Twitter and tell us your favorite piece of L.A. architecture to win a copy of Jeffrey Fleischman's novel, My Detective. And our winner is... Jonathan Bannister. Congratulations. A copy of My Detective will be on its way to you soon. And folks, you know, you really should enter these giveaways on Twitter. Find us, follow us. Your chances of winning are very high until more people start entering these things. <laughs> so Steve, what did we learn this time? David Swenson taught us that old punks never die. They just start writing crime novels. Ed Amar taught us exactly how much is too much public nudity. And Michelle Miller taught us that men are dogs, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. Visit blackstonepublishing.com for a great selection of titles in crime fiction and more. As we mentioned, you really should be following us on Twitter, at WriterTypes. Please subscribe to the show, and while you're there, leave us a review. The show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.